We are looking at Acts, the end of Acts 6 today, uh, but mostly at Acts 7. And then next week we'll be finishing up our series on the book of Acts by looking at part of Acts 8. And what we are, what we are seeing here, really, this is the first martyrdom in the Christian church, is Stephen. And we're going to see that. Um, what's about to happen as we study this redemptive historical movement of the early church is, is, you know, at Pentecost, we went from 120 to 3,000, and then there was the growth to maybe up to 20,000. And that's all believers in Jerusalem, right, right near the temple. But we're about to spill over in chapter 8 to Samaria, and at the end of chapter 8 to the Ethiopian eunuch, which really signifies starting to move to the ends of the known earth at that time. And so this seed is going out of Abraham. But this week, what we're going to see is Stephen, who last week was anointed as one of the seven. Remember, the apostles needed help uh, in, in, in overseeing the structures of the church. And so in verse um, 8, or in verse 7, we, or in verse 6, we found out that Stephen was one of those chosen. And now we'll begin at verse 8. I'm going to read... Only parts. I'm not going to read all of seven. That would be 10 minutes of reading. That's a lot of reading. I thought about doing it because it's really, really good. So here's my hope. My challenge to you guys is to read it at home today. I'm going to just touch on a lot of the important parts. But um, for the sake of time, I'm going to do the beginning, uh, leading into seven, and then the end of chapter seven. And I'll paraphrase some of the middle. So starting in verse eight. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders, and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. By the way, they were gathered near or at the temple. And they go on to say, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so he's questioned by the high priest at the beginning of seven, and he launches into a sermon, a speech, uh, where he covers redemptive history. He starts with Abraham, and he moves through Isaac and Jacob, and then Joseph and Joseph's rejection by um, his own brothers how Joseph was used to rescue his people from Egypt. And then he goes to Moses and how Moses was raised in Egypt and how he was there and at the age of 40 uh, is used by God or actually goes out into the wilderness and then 40 years later comes back and rescues the people. So he goes all through redemptive history and he's making some points. And throughout the sermon, I'll highlight some of those points and some of those passages. And then he moves to David who wanted to build the house of God, but Solomon who did build the house of God and in verse 49, um, he quotes Isaiah by saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord. And then picking up at verse 51, he says something very soft and tender. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. So the church is growing. Actually, let me pray. Sorry, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, we praise you. We praise you that you Show us your glory. You sent your spirit that we could see. You've, you've made way through the, the blood of Christ that we have access to you. And yet, Lord, maybe like some of these people in this passage, we're afraid. Lord, sometimes we uh, are filled with unbelief. And at other times, Lord, we're drawn to you and we praise you and you, you do show us glimpses of your glory. I pray this morning, I pray if there are unbelievers here, that they would turn to you. And Lord, for those of us that already are Christians, teach us to bask in your glory, that we would love you, that we would run to you, that we would see you're already running to us. Amen. The church is growing. The church is expanding. And we're, we've been watching this opposition along the way. Um, we've, we've seen different ways in which the opposition has come out through Ananias, through Sapphira. We saw the arrest of Peter and John having healed the lame man. Um, we even saw last week the potential for a conflict with just backbiting potentially and the, the, the whisper campaign. And yet it's not work. The church has grown. And now we come to a full-out martyrdom, a death. And there's a famous line from church history that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So even though we come to this death and it's very sad, what we do find is that God uses that kind of sacrifice to spread his church. And it's this opposition that I'm drawn to, this opposition that I want to talk to us about. Because when you read his whole speech, Stephen is really reminding the people, the council, and all of us of the, of the potential to think we are so close to God, and yet we could be the opposition. The, the opposition in this passage is religion, by the way. Um, I was thinking about illustrations, as I always do, and a thought came to me of being when I was six years old in my backyard, uh, finding, you all see, you've seen the cicada shell things, the skins. They're fascinating. Like, I remember seeing these and peeling it off and 
they just look awesome. Have you, if you've stared at these things, I'm like, what kind of dinosaur was in this, you know? And then they crumble, so you grab the next one off. And I, um, I was talking with Ronnie about it this week, and she's like, yeah, but then they get in your house, and she's talking about the ones that are alive. And I remembered, oh, yeah, like the living cicadas. Have you seen those guys? They're not. They're like, vroom, they fly out of the trees. They make loud noises. They're completely different than that little docile thing. So is it with God, right? Religion is docile. It's, it's, you can set it on the fence. It doesn't move. It's, it's this little shell. It's neat. It's full of intricacies. But the living God is active and moving and powerful. And I'm afraid for myself and for often for all of us, what we are trying to do when we run toward religion is rather than moving toward God and his glory, oftentimes we're running from his glory. We're trying to find other forms, right? And so this morning, I hope what we can find is that that tendency is real and we want to recover this passion, this love for the glory of God that we see Stephen have. Uh, My hope for all of us is that we find the glory of Christ more and more filling and rich from this passage and in general for our lives as we move forward. So I want to just track really through the problem or problems in this passage and then the cure, okay? So let's just talk about the problem in the passage for a few minutes. Um, There's an accusation that's being made against Stephen. And it's interesting, later we notice that Saul has sent these witnesses and these men who have secretly instigated these complaints, but they're kind of true. They're half-truths. Really, the complaint is, this man is speaking words against the temple and against the law, right? And then we track Stephen's speech, and we see that maybe, indeed, some of that has some truth to it. So let's talk about his speech. What is he talking about? He begins by talking about the glory of God. Brothers and fathers, hear me. This is verse 2 of chapter 7. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And so Stephen, one of the things he's showing this council is this. Where you're sitting is not that special. We have this tendency to think that objects are sacred by themselves. And he's saying, actually, you were just this faraway land God went to Mesopotamia to find Abraham and bring him to you. And as you track through what he says, not only that, he walked, he didn't even have a foot's length of this promised land yet, but the promise was for a child, okay, for a people. And then he talks about Joseph. Remember, Joseph, who was in the land, was, uh, or was in this region, was sent to Egypt outside of the land, okay? And that's where Joseph becomes, as you know, the second in command of of Egypt, of all the goods. And then he talks about how Jacob and all the family came to Joseph. And it was from Egypt that Joseph was able to bless the patriarchs who turned against him. And then he talks about Moses. Moses, though for three months raised with his mother, was raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, he tells us. And so what he's telling this council is our heroes... We're all aliens in a way, all coming from outside in. And it wasn't the land and it wasn't this people group that was saving them. In fact, this people group often were the opposition, which we'll talk about in a few moments. So Moses is trained by the Egyptians, um, but he goes off into 
um, Egypt, and he brings the people outside of Egypt and tracks them into, into the promised land. Again, the, the promised land was not something he ever got to enter himself. Tracking through chapter 7, he finishes with David and Solomon and even David, who all on that council would lift up as the greatest, right? The son of David is who they were waiting for. Yet even David did not get to build a house. So the point, one of what he's making is quit making things, right? Quit making the temple. Quit making the very good gifts of God the final thing instead of Jesus. That's really his point to them. But secondly, he, he goes even further into the reason for this rejection. I want to spend just a few minutes looking at their rejection of, uh, of the situation. Why is it that we as a people tend to gravitate toward the ceremonial aspects of religion and often do it in opposition to God? It's not just alongside. Sometimes you would think, well, I'm very religious and I really love the glory of God. But often our religion... We set up our, our systems, our rituals, which are really good by themselves. Are are, they're good if they point us to Christ, but by themselves can lead us down dark paths. Because often what we're doing is rejecting God completely in these things. So again, I want to track chapter 7 and show you the rejection. He says, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Think about that. The twelve Patriarchs. Now, if you were on that council, you knew which one of those 12 was your lineage. You knew what tribe you were in, and that was important, and that was actually a great thing. But he's reminding them, Stephen's reminding them, those 12, our heroes, rejected Joseph, which, by the way, is probably the most Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. They sent him away, and it was doing that that saved their very lives. So the story that he's building in his speech, and again, I would encourage you to read it on your own, is the story that all through the Old Testament, redemption is poured out. Like the redemption of God coming from outside in to rescue you is poured out through the entire Old Testament. Moses himself was rejected. He was rejected, Stephen tells us, by when he walked out and he saw the um, Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave, he killed the Egyptian. You would kind of think like, yes, viva la revolution, you know? Nope. The next day the slave goes, you're a murderer. And, and that's what created Moses' need to flee for 40 years to Midian. So rejected even by his own people. And then Moses rescues these people out of Egypt. And it says in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you? a ruler and a judge. Well, God did, but they rejected him. Do you hear the theme? Rejection. And then by, by verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So the accusations, here's the problem. Accusation number one, they said, this Stephen, this guy is telling everybody that this temple is not significant. And his entire sermon to defend that claim agrees with that. He's like, yeah, it really isn't. It really isn't that significant. And they said, and by the way, he threatens the law. And at the end of his statement to them, right before their response in verse 54, at the end of 53, he says, you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow, he exposes them. He exposes this tendency of the very people who should be for God, be 
drawn to his glory, to be excited by his glory, to actually reject him. Why? Why do they do that? And how do we do that? And why do we do that? Um, in James, it says, James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you as a parent? I've probably read that verse 457 times to my kids. They fight. And whether I'm doing it out of good motives or not, let's look at the book of James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's really a great, it's really a great verse. And the answer is, is it not this? You do not have, so you murder. So I was thinking about an illustration, because right about now, in a sermon, it's good to have an illustration. And I thought, what would be, a, you know, those movies where, like, there's a problem, and so, like, maybe it's a mob movie, and they end up killing, you know, you start just seeing, like, the person trying to cover their tracks, and it's, like, death after death, right? I thought about that, and then I thought of a better illustration. I want to talk about uh, Sixth Sense, okay? A little easier illustration. I've talked about it before, just to remind you. It's a little bit more lighthearted, kind of weird. Bruce Willis is a psychologist, a child psychologist. And early in the movie, you see one of his patients who's aged out of his practice hurt him. And, he, and then you just see kind of like his, the, maybe the tragedy of that attack, leading he and his wife to have a rough, rocky marriage. And then you see him meet Haley Joe Osmond's character. I don't know the name of the character. You, I'm sure some of you do. Who has a problem. I won't tell you what it is. And they begin interacting. The problem is he sees people who've gone on. I'm trying to say it carefully. We have young ones in the room. Okay? Do you all know the movie? For those of you that don't know, what you find out at the very end of that movie is that the entire movie, Bruce Willis was not alive. Okay, I have a really, um, I have a, there's a comedian I've really grown to love, and he's actually really clean for adults, Nate Bergazzi. If you don't like him, it's uh, Brent Niles turned me on to Nate Bergazzi. He's coming to Oklahoma City. He talks about this movie, and he says, this movie proves this. We're all very comfortable with the silent treatment. Like, for all of us to think that was a normal marriage for two hours, they weren't talking to each other. They were just sitting in the same room means we're very comfortable with giving people a silent treatment. Now, he says it much funnier than that. But I thought about the silent treatment. Do, I, this is the, we all do the silent treatment. We don't mean to. Maybe we don't do it actively. But when our feelings get hurt, we do. We often like, I'm not going to talk to that person. Maybe we don't think it consciously because we're too mature for that. But there's this tendency with people, maybe, maybe years ago, I don't think I actively do this anymore, but I can think of times in my life growing up even Mad at my mom, mad at somebody, I was going to be quiet. I wasn't going to talk to them. Have you ever, anyone, am I the only person that does a silent treatment? No? No silent treatments? And so what you do is you, you, don't, you don't acknowledge it. That's the whole point. That's why that whole movie, all of us are like, yeah, this is perfectly normal. But what you do in a silent treatment is you ignore the one you love. You focus on something else, right? I'm doing my job. I'm going to do this thing, and, and I'm not going to engage that person right now. I just can't handle it. It's too much. But what, what's going on in our heart, if we're honest in those moments, is we know that if we were to engage a conversation, like, so Nate Bergazzi does a great job. You know, you accidentally walk into the same room at the same time, and you're like, oh, I didn't expect that, per-, you know. So you kind of like have to shuttle down the hallway and, well, you know, go on. And everything's fine. There's not a problem. We're just being quieter than normal. What's going on is if we have a conversation, I'm going to be exposed, right? If we have this conversation, I'm going to be drawn out. 
And so it's easier to ignore the person, whether it's a spouse, a child, a coworker, a roommate, anybody. It's so much easier to freeze them out than it is to engage them because of that exposure. And isn't that what I think the religious people do with God? They, it's easier to move toward structures and systems and processes than it is to actually have that full-on, healthy relationship with God that they aren't having right now. How are you with God right now? Like, what, how are you, just how would you define your relationship? Are you in a silent treatment? Now, is that in our passage? I think it is. Stephen sees the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 55, he sees that. I'm going to talk about this in a minute. So in 56, he tells them. I'll I'll go back to that in a few moments. But in 57, it's their response. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. Do you know what that is, what's going on? Years ago, it was probably the last conversation I had with my dad about religion. He's still alive, and I seriously doubt he listens to my sermons, and he's not here today, but I can tell you if he would listen to this sermon, he would laugh at this story. But anyway, we were having a religious conversation. I had just come back from Colorado. We moved to Oklahoma, and we were debating. He likes to debate. Maybe I like to debate. Anyway. So we're having this conversation, and I remember making a particularly good point, and he puts his fingers in his ears and goes, la, 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 la. He was 70 years old at the time. That's what they're doing. I mean, read, this, read what they're doing. They cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together to get Stephen. It was too much. The truth was too much. The glory of God was too much for them, and they take him out, and they stone him. That's the problem. That's what happened. That's what's going on. So that's the problem in the text. Our, our second and major point will be the cure. What's the cure for this? And the answer is we should long for the glory of God. Are you longing for this? In chapter 6, right at the very beginning, excuse me, in chapter 6, right at the very beginning of the conversation, in verse 15, this council had gathered. Stephen was sitting in front of them. And it says, and gazing at him, All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel, right? And that's reminiscent of of Moses, who on Sinai would go and be in the presence of God, and when he would come down, his face was radiating, just glory, right? Do you want the glory of God? What is glory? Like, what does that even mean? I mean, remember the internet video of the guy with the rainbows, the two rainbows? That was one of those early videos that went viral, at least for me. Okay, Boomer, is that right? This early video of a guy who walks out wherever he is and sees a rainbow, and he's just like, oh, rainbow! And then he realizes, what? A double rainbow. And he begins to cry out, a double rainbow. And he's just in ecstasy. And I want you to know, like, we should be like that. Like, I was watching the CMAs for just a few minutes, and Willie Nelson was singing that song, Why Are There So Many Songs About Rainbows? I can only think of that one. But, why are, but it's a song about a rainbow. Like, what's the point? It's like this, it's like all I know 
is it's something far more glorious than me, and it's, it's huge. How much more glorious would the throne room of God look? For Isaiah in, in chapter 6, he's a prophet. He's been doing prophetic work for a long time. But in chapter 6, he sees the throne of God. He hears the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And he says, I am undone. Woe is me. He saw the glory. Do you see the glory of God? What do you do with even the thought of the glory of God? We have two options. One of our options is to do what they did and plug our ears. Are you doing that? I really want you to ask yourself, am I plugging my ears and making a noise and ignoring the reality of the presence and the glory of Jesus? What are ways you might do that? What are things you would turn into uh, glorious objects in themselves? Here's a really simple test. What things in your life, if they were, if they were removed, would you feel like you were dying? Right? Even great things like children and spouses and health. Oftentimes we turn great things like religion into the end of, it, of themselves. And we begin to be so enwrapped with these things that Jesus is now simply the one who gives us these things and not necessarily the one we're aiming at with all of our lives. And so if that's true, and I think for all of us it's true on some level, then what that means is there are places we need to repent. There are things we need to go into and, and re-examine and take to Jesus again. But the tendency is going to be if these places are touched, your career, your reputation, whatever that thing is, you'll know it's getting triggered when your goal, your thought is to shut out whatever is, is getting in the way and you want to just make the noise and get rid of it. What is that thing for you? Some other thoughts of ways to think about it. I was thinking about makeup. Um, women, I'm sorry, I think makeup is completely fine. You're welcome to do makeup. But I just, you know, when you see a person for the first time without the makeup, you know, you're like, you look different than you do with the makeup. And I remember my mom would spend hours just getting ready and she putting her face on is what she would say. How are we doing that spiritually? How are we trying to pretend spiritually? Right? Not only to out there to other people, but even for ourselves. You know, what are the things we're doing to keep really God at a distance? So one of our options when we come to the glory of God is to just cover the ears. The other option is to praise him. But how did we do it? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. How do we enter into praise that's authentic and real? And the answer is we need a priest. See, the problem is the wrong kinds of religious um, accoutrements or the wrong kinds of things that we go to instead of Jesus, like a false priest, right? Look at, and we can't, well, you can look if you have your Bible. Verse 7, we talked about this last week. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then listen to what Luke tells us. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, at first blush, you think that means he hit it out of the ballpark. Like they were, they were getting the, the, the stars, so to speak. You know, the ones that were the priests. I think it's more likely that the priests are realizing we're not needed. Jesus is the priest, Right? 
So let me talk to you about what a priest is. That's an odd word. Um, we don't really have, a, we, we know that some faiths still use that language. If you're not a believer or you're not a, a used to that kind of higher church, it would seem strange. But priests always wear garments that set them apart. Sometimes in our denomination, guys will wear a, a robe. And it's not because they believe they're different with the robe on. It's, it's, you can ask them why they do it, and I'm not saying it's wrong. It's only wrong to do things like that again if you think that it does something spiritual for you outside of Christ. But anyway, I think garments are very normal. In fact, you see that in the Old Testament. In, in Exodus uh, 38, you have this place, and I want to encourage you, by the way, when you read your Bible and you come to these paragraphs, to not just skip over them. I was reading this, it's been about seven months ago, but I, I read it, and I thought, I'm going to really pray and try to understand this. From the blue and the purple and the scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments. For ministering in the holy place, they made the holy garments for Aaron. They had an ephod of gold and blue and purple yarn, and you just keep reading, onyx stones and, and gold filigree and engraved images. I mean, you get the picture that if we saw that garment today, I mean, we would be tempted to worship the garment. I mean, it was glorious. It was beautiful. And then in Exodus, you find out that they consecrate the garment. But in Leviticus chapter 8, we go into more detail so now Aaron has the garment on. Now think about this, the expense and the glory and the beauty of this garment. Aaron, you are a priest. And he has this garment. And in verse 30, then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood. They had just sacrificed several animals. And they sprinkled that blood on this garment. Can you imagine the feeling? Just think of the feeling. You're wearing this garment for the first time. It's like, congratulations. You're a priest, and then Moses starts splattering you with blood. We need a priest, don't we? We need a priest. We need a priest who doesn't think he's all that. We don't need human priests. We need the right priest, right? We need the right priest who has the ability to intercede between you and God, and we have that priest in our very passage. We have that priest in the form of Jesus. Listen to what he says. I'm going to now highlight Chapter 7, verse 55. But he, Stephen, is full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. Now, Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but God told him what? It would kill you. So he hid him in a cleft. Remember that story? Stephen has seen the glory of God. Why is he not dying? Because Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is not sitting. He's not just hanging out. Jesus is interceding between Stephen and God's glory, and he's the priest. And Stephen is fully aware that it's the blood of Christ that saved him. It's nothing Stephen did that made him better. That the blood of Christ that came from outside in, that the alien righteousness that didn't, wasn't born on earth from Adam or Moses or Noah was born from God. The Holy Spirit came on Mary. Alien righteousness grew up on earth to fulfill the law, to die and raise again. And his blood has been splattered on you because you are now in him. It is his righteousness. 
Is that what you turn to for your hope? When I read this passage, I want to know the glory of God, but I feel very nervous. I feel very hesitant. Do you feel that way a little bit? Like, there's another priest in our passage, and it's Stephen. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know who else said that? Jesus. And you think, what does that mean? Do not hold this sin against them. Like, possibly, and I think this is part of the truth, for what they were doing to both Jesus on the cross, more importantly, but even to Stephen and martyrdom, you can imagine God's wrath just coming in and, and drawing in vengeance right there. So partly, he might be actually restraining priestly. You know, even how Moses was afraid, or um, Abraham was fearful of Lot's destruction, right? There's a priestly act there, but there's a bigger, bigger piece to the puzzle. Do not hold this sin against them. Who's them? And Saul approved of the execution. The first martyr, Stephen, the first martyr is Saul, who is Paul the apostle. Paul goes on to say, I'm the least of God's people. Uh, he is converted on the road to Damascus. He is aware his entire life that it is, it is purely the blood of Christ that has rescued him and given him access to the throne and he says this in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure, that it's a treasure of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, sorry, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We open the service and we're going to close the service with that beautiful song, Absent from Flesh. We're not longing to be disembodied spirits, brothers and sisters. That's not the goal. The goal is to be finally clothed with our final body. That's our longing. And everything this side of heaven, once we see Jesus in glory and to the degree we meditate and we bask in that reality and when we take this feast, we're, we're, we're taking the recipient of the, of the spirit, we're promised this remembrance of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. The goal is to be freed from all the things that take our eyes off of him. All the ways we plug our ears, all the ways we rattle our tongues, all the ways we want to run from his glory. So my prayer for all of us is as we move to the table in a few moments and as we end in that song, that we would be freshly filled with the glory of Jesus, that we are his children only because of the blood of Christ. Paul did nothing to deserve it. Do you believe that? You can do nothing to gain it other than believe. Let's pray. Lord, we want your glory. We want to praise. We want to sing. We, we hear these songs in the, in the psalms that we've read. We see the lives of so many saints that have gone before us. We see Stephen in this sermon. And even as rocks are hitting his body, we, we see him making a proclamation of love for others. Lord, we get mad if we don't have creamer. We need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to remind us of your love, 
to remind us of your intercession, to convict us of our unbelief. Lord, as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a few moments, that we would know the cost. It was costly. Lord, it was far more costly than Stephen's death. Because in Stephen's death, you were smiling on him. But in your death, your father turned his face away. Thank you for rescuing us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would revive us this morning. And if there are those in this room who fall into the category of a stiff-necked person, ignoring your message, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes. That even Saul was redeemed. The enemy, the evil one, became your greatest missionary and your great, one of your great apostles. In your name we pray. Amen.